Hi everybody, it's Matt here with a quick note about this episode. We were recording in a challenging environment. The room was noisy, there were several people, and we only had one microphone. We've done our best after the fact to clean things up by reducing the background noise and boosting everyone's level to roughly the same. We think it turned out okay, but we wanted to let you know that this recording is just a little bit different audio quality-wise. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. Uh, today we are broadcasting from the end of the uh, mostly annual Inside Baseball event. This time it was held at a secret location on G Street Northeast in Washington, D.C. And there's still a little bit of ambient noise because yes. folks are, are still around chatting, making big deals uh, in, the, in the world of DNS, mergers, acquisitions, and so forth. So I'm Matt Larson, your co-host, and you just heard my other co-host. Cricket Lou. And here we are. So we actually have some questions in the mailbag. Uh, we have a room full of people who are uh, interested to, at the very least, see us and hopefully even participate in making the sausage that is the Ask Mr. <laughs> DNS podcast. Um, so we've done our usual uh, massive hours of preparation to determine the uh, optimum order for asking these four questions, which I think is going to be determined by the order that they are on my screen. Um, That's a good enough order. Yeah. Are you going to riffle through the mailbag? Uh, go ahead. All right. It's high production value. Yes. All right. So our first question is from John Doe. Ooh. I'm guessing that is not his real name. And he says it would be amazing to get his question randomly picked out of all the questions of your mailbag sent from your millions of listeners. I think, I don't know that I appreciate your sarcasm, Mr. Mr. <laughs> I, I think only we are allowed to joke about our millions of listeners and our high production values. So anyway, he says, uh, the other day I was asking myself if anything is using the mname field of the SOA record. I usually put there the quote unquote master name server, but I doubt any DNS client is supposed to use that field instead of the NS records. I also configure the IP of the master into the slave manually. So I doubt the slave tries to use the SOAM name. So why not ask Mr. DNS instead of the RFCs? Good good call. Oh. <laughs> so it's certainly a lot slower than checking the RFCs. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the answer and further discussions to this crucial question, again, the sarcasm, John, uh, <laughs> could be shared with the millions of listeners. John Doe, oh, from France. Ooh, Jean Doe. Jean. It's Jean Doe. All right. I can think of two places that the M name field is is used beyond just by by individuals who are looking at the output from their query tool. Um, you guys, you guys know off the top of your head what the I can actually only think of one. I can only think of one. I can, can think of only one too. Okay. Well, one of them is notify. Yes. Right. So so notifies are suppressed to uh, to the thing listed in the M name field. I believe that's still true. Right. So if I okay, believe so that's two. Okay. <laughs> yes, that, that, exactly. That's, that, that's the other one. Right. So, the, so the, the, I guess to, to, to draw that out a little bit, to make it a little bit more explicit, um, uh, when name servers, modern name servers anyway, uh, when a primary, for example, gets reloaded and it uh, loads new data for its own, then it will send out a notify message to um, the secondaries that it knows about 
and it knows about them from NS records that it might hold for the zone. It subtracts itself from the list if it finds itself in the list. And it also subtracts the thing listed in the mname field. Um, so it presumes that that's the primary for the zone. It doesn't need to send it to notify. And it sends notify messages to all the other uh, DNS servers, anything listed in an also notify statement if you're talking about bind, sends notifies, notify messages to those. And then in turn, the secondaries may send no, uh, usually, unless it's suppressed, send notify messages to other secondaries. And so that's number one. And number two, dynamic update. Yeah. Does anybody want to go through how that works? Anybody want to chime in? Uh, well, I mean, the, I, this is Matt Poundset. Um, I guess the simple answer to that is really just that by default, anything that is generating a dynamic update message will send it to the host name in, in the M name field um, in, in the absence of any other configuration. So, yeah. 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 In fact, I, I think if I remember RFC 2136, the way that it's supposed to work is that the updater is supposed to look at the list of NS records. And if the M name is one of those, if the, the domain name uh, listed in the M name field is the same as the R data, one of the NS records, it chooses to send the dynamic update there first. But I think that not all updaters do that. For example, I think um, the, the Windows dyna dynamic update routines actually will send to the thing designated in the M name field, regardless of whether or not it appears in the NS records. So if you have, for example, a stealth primary, uh, or hidden primary, whatever you want to call it. Pat or or, or maybe not so hidden if you put the name in the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, Semi-hidden. Semi-hidden. Yeah, so, yeah, speaking from experience, that uh, they that definitely does happen. Yeah. Um, and there was a uh, very large zone that I inherited authority, authority for many years ago. Um, where I came in, um, the M name in that zone had been set to a host name with that was guaranteed to not have an address record associated with it, mm. specifically to fix that problem. Um, the previous operators had picked dot as that name. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've done that just for quick shorthand purposes in a yeah. test zone, for yeah. sure. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that was, uh, um, somebody had decided that that was the best way to make sure that no update messages were ever, ever sent anywhere for that zone. Right, except yeah. to the roots. No, well, no, because, because there's no address record for DOT, it would never be sent anywhere. So I, I guess just to close off the rest of the question, I mean, I'm not aware of any implementation that uses the M name in resolution in any way. Not that I, not that I know of, no. You mean a recursive that would actually Correct. look yeah. at no. yeah. So does anybody in the room know any other uses besides those two? I, I certainly cannot think of any. I had forgotten about the notify suppression. You know, my first thing was thinking of dynamic updates. Those, those were the only two that I could think of. And it is worth noting that, you know, perhaps neither of those use cases even matter in your operations environment. Like, if you have a static zone that's not doing dynamic updates, yeah. you know, you, you already configured notifies explicitly through your name server software, then it becomes entirely irrelevant. Yes, exactly. So considering notifying dynamic update are more recent bolt-ons to the DNS protocol. Does anybody know the origin of the M name field and uh, why why it was put there? Like, was it like what what purpose was it intended to serve besides just documentation? I thought it was just it was a compliment to our name. Right, our name is really documentation too. It's if something goes wrong with uh, resolution in this zone, you can find out. Uh, 
the email address of somebody to uh, somebody to contact. Mm -hmm. That that was always my assumption. It's a shame that Paul isn't here to remember what his thinking was thirty years ago. <laughs> All right, I think we beat that. Yeah, yeah. I think we beat that to the ground. <laughs> yep. Do you want to read the next one, or you want me to keep going? Oh, uh, why don't you do it? I mean, All right. Well, I was gonna. Uh, Another one that I think is uh, seemingly simple, but actually a lot to talk about. So this is from Chuifan. I think it's I think it's a it's a Chinese name, so it's Chu Yi Fan. Okay. So Yi Fan would be the given name. I, I defer to the co-host whose last name is Lu. <laughs> it's um, the, part, the, the only part Asian person present. <laughs> uh, so he has a question about deploying multiple name servers. He said, we've registered four authoritative name servers. Uh, he wants to know the strategy for a recursive DNS resolver to select among four name servers. Uh, he said he's made a rough statistic of the traffic volume and he finds that one of the name servers uh, gets much more traffic than the rest of them. And he wants to know why would that be? So. And that's, that's super implementation specific. It really depends on the recursive DNS yeah. server that you're you're talking about. I mean, I can I can answer for for Bind, for example, which has pretty much since the beginning of its history used a, a, an algorithm that they refer to as round trip time to choose among a set of authoritative name servers. And basically, you can think of it as uh, every time Bind has a choice, say uh, among your four DNS servers, um, it it chooses according to round trip time. If it's if it doesn't have a round trip time for them, it actually seeds the initial values with a random low round trip time. And then when it chooses uh, which one to send to, it chooses the lowest one. It starts a little internal stopwatch when it sends the query. When it gets a response back, it stops the stopwatch and it basically calculates a weighted average of how long uh, your, your DNS server took to respond. So after the first four times, you'll, uh, four queries to, to your DNS servers for domain names in your zone, it'll have those round trip times seeded. It'll have sort of real world round trip times for your DNS servers, and thereafter, it'll typically choose the one that's the lowest. Well, we'll always choose the one that's the lowest. Yeah. What I think is amazing is that there's literally like one line in RFC 1035 about this. It says something like, in terms of guidance to implementers about writing uh, a recursive resolver, it's like choose the best server or something <laughs> like that, right? So, like, this is one of those cases where DNS is woefully underspecified. Now, one could argue that that's a feature because different implementations have done it different ways. Like DNS cache, for example, uh, used to, uh, Dan Bernstein's implementation chose randomly, if right. I'm not, not mistaken, at least. I think, I think every time, didn't keep any state, always chooses randomly. I know Unbound at one point had um, like a 200 millisecond round trip time. Uh, band. Band, yeah. yeah. So, so like everything from zero to 200 milliseconds was effectively smeared together as equivalent RTT. So they were effectively random within that band. And 200 milliseconds is a long time. That's a big so that, band. So it's a big band. Any other comments? In the yeah, so this is a tale. There's a couple of interesting things. Uh, Dwayne Wessels was just in here a moment ago. He did a, one of the seminal research papers on the topic about well, 10 years ago. someone else's day. name is also Oh, were you also yeah. <laughs> No, no. Well, I, but you're... You're exempt because you're a co-host. Right. Well, right. no, but I, but I must, I must, if I could just interrupt to, to say, uh, the most important name on that paper is a guy right. named uh, Yingdi Yu. I hope I'm right, remembering right. his name. And Yingdi was a fantastic uh, summer intern uh, at VeriSign who did a really good job and did all the work on it. Right. Right. Um, and uh, 
in response to that paper, which you know did laboratory setting uh, testing for the different algorithms that were in use, a number of the resolvers then updated their resolver algorithms. Yeah. And actually, to expand on Cricket's definition of how Bind did it, Bind actually went from using pure SRTT smooth round trip times to using banding also, although with much smaller than 200 millisecond bands. Yeah. Um, and the one important ingredient that you left out of that is that it decays yeah. what the round trip time is so that even the slower name servers still get a chance to be checked, rechecked occasionally to see whether they've all of a sudden become faster because a net split yielded itself. Right, right, right. They decay by 0.98, I think, every time they're not chosen. So there's a, there's a, the weighted average, there's the decay. There's well, and it was really interesting because one of the things that the paper showed that they updated the algorithm about was um, the way the decay happened, it happened in response to the query rate. And so, um, if you had a set a name server set that was being pulled frequently, it in fact would try the poor name servers much more frequently than mm -hmm. one that was only um, selected randomly. So. Yeah, it, it may be worth specifying too that um, the the technique that you mentioned that uh, Dan Bernstein used in, in I, I always forget cache DNS or DNS cache DNS cache, DNS cache as well as um, the, the the SRTT uh, algorithm they went to is important because. Um, that randomness in the server selection algorithm helps defend against, for example, cache poisoning attacks. Right. Because if the, the bad guy can predict, for example, by looking at latency or just eyeballing a list of, of name servers saying, well, this one is clearly much closer to the recursive that I want to attack, then that's the only one he really needs to spoof responses from. So in fact, I remember, uh, well, I didn't hear this directly from him, but third hand, that Water Weingarts, the primary developer of Unbound, that's the reason there's that 200 millisecond band that it's so yeah. wide yeah. is is to have more randomness in the selection. Yeah. yeah. Any other con could could we? I don't want to put anyone on the spot. As I look <laughs> but w would you be willing to talk about how your implementation does uh, authoritative server selection? Um, I could talk a little bit about it, but there's a lot of code. A lot of it was written long before I started, so I'm not familiar with all of the details. It's Alex. From um, Google. From Google. Yes. Um, actually, confusingly, not the Alex that probably wrote most of this code, who uh, still works at Google uh, at Jigsaw now. Um, and uh, uh, so there's a sort of a chain of, of Alex's passing the baton on. Um, do, you have an, do you have an Alex in waiting? No. <laughs> Just, no? no? You have to stay then. <laughs> For a little while, anyhow. Um, in, in all seriousness, I, 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 I said I didn't want to put you on the spot, and then I promptly put you on the spot. So, <laughs> so if if you would rather not, it's certainly it's certainly fine. I, I just fine. honestly, I, I'm not as familiar with that particular piece of the code that I would be able to answer informally without preparation. That is perfectly okay. Yeah. That is all you need to say. Although it's never really prevented us from <laughs> mooting an answer. <laughs> Um, yes, you're clearly not with the spirit of the podcast, which is just, you know, yeah, make think. stuff up and bluff. Yeah. So this is clearly wrong, so... Perhaps the uh, last comment of note is that the root server operators have also been really interested in this, and so the RSAC has a work party that is looking at refreshing our understanding of what the different resolver algorithms are. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so Paul Hoffman, who works with me at ICANN on the research team in the office of the CTO, um, is is very active in that RSAC work party and is building a test bed uh, with a bunch of VMs that you'll be able to have a, a DNS architecture in a box and be able to run these tests. So one of the one of the first things we want to run on that, the, you know, the larger we, is uh, do 
do research on this. Repeat the research. All right, good. I, I believe uh, some uh, recursives also will treat Oops. lost packets. About this is John Todd from Pod Nine. Some recursives will treat lost packets, and they will severely decrement that counter uh, on any kind of loss or failure. So, even a minor amount of packet loss will, That's will right. significantly. Like, yeah, I want to say it was one point point two. One point two is a right. Is a penalty the multiplier. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you don't if you don't respond, you get your RTT multiplied by one point two in bot anyway. And, and PowerDNS and Unbound have similar strategies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just remember from. Of course, we're we're not answering. Um, question that he wound up with here, which was, why would one of his servers be getting more? And the answer is... Closer to big more pres Presumably, yeah. yeah. But, what, but what I remember was, um, from my time at VeriSign, uh, when I looked at the um, real-time monitoring we had for the uh, .com, .net name servers, and you, it really it did a good job. It, it, the overall union of the internet recursives server selection algorithm did a good job spreading the queries reasonably evenly across all the uh, NSRRs. Like, let's say plus or minus 20%. There was a bump for, uh, if I seem to recall, for a.gtldservers.net, the first one. So presumably some people, uh, some implementations are preserving, uh, preferring the first. But what was interesting was then to zoom in on the ones that were anycasted. So if you looked at a given IP, all its anycast instances. There, not surprisingly, there was a vast difference, like sure. you know, maybe order of magnitude, because then you're not relying on service selection, you're relying on the internet's routing algorithm, which you know can be wild. Yes. I think you also can't discount the amount of diagnostic stuff that probably just queries a dot root servers dot net. Yeah. yeah. Not so, because it actually cares about it in any way, but but to measure like is the internet available? Yeah. Right. We get a lot of queries for that particular domain for A records. Mm -hmm. So I imagine they're probably pinging it or something like that. And some might be actually sending DNS queries as well. Uh, the, the question didn't state whether these are all IPv4 or v6. I know that some recursive systems will also prefer v6 if there's one available in the stack. Mm -hmm. So they will, they will be preferred first. Yeah. Uh, they will be given a, a, a bonus. Something has to prefer v6, I guess. <laughs> Is, is this a good time for the story about the about a root at, at Verisign? Go ahead. The the ostensible a root at Verisign. You know more about this than I do, but I remember one of the first times I visited Verisign. This is before our little company was acquired by Verisign. When it was not even Verisign. When it was not even Verisign. That's right. It was still Network Solutions in those days. But they had the they had a, 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 a data center, and inside of it there was a little hanging sign that said a root server or something like that and below it was uh was a rack and i'm told it was not a oh really they don't <laughs> yeah. it, it was just it was the, the it was it was, it was a root a server root it was a root server i'm not sure it was a root server i think it was just a server but I, I recall a picture of you and me standing there with big grins on our face next to the you know the two we were, t we were the two, in. The two idiots next to the <laughs> supposed root server. Young and easily impressed. Yes. Yeah. yes. All right. Well, you want to read yeah, the sure. next one? Uh, yeah, this is this is actually from uh, Neil Smith, who who I know quite well. I went to see a cricket match with him not too long ago when I was in London. My first oh, cricket match. <laughs> cricket. Yes. Cricket's tour of Australia. And let me tell you, oh, my God. So long. We showed well, that, up at 11 o'clock for it was game 
four? No, it was the last game. It was the uh, fifth game of England v India. Um, so this was this was for all the for all the marbles basically. Although England had already sewed it up, people had been there since the gates opened at nine a.m. or nine thirty. We left early at four thirty after having been served tea and lunch. Wow! And was it over? No, we left before it ended. And did, it was one day of... Did it end that day? No, <laughs> it did not. Frequently they don't. Yes, it did not end that day. So, <clears throat> anyway, hey, Neil. Uh, Neil says, uh, firstly, uh, thanks for a great episode 57 podcast. That was, uh, what, 2016? No, no, no. Oh, we should mention what that was. That was, the, that was the podcast with uh, special guest Rob Fleischman, who talked about uh, TTLs oh, and yes, TTL yes. Zero in particular. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Rob did a nice job of handling that. So he says, your discussion raised a further thought or follow-up question. Uh, I wonder whether Rob, perhaps an alternative recursive provider, or most likely Mr. DNS, is best suited to discuss or answer. Well, we can certainly discuss it. I'll discuss <laughs> anything. Wait, so, clear, clearly. Yes. He says, uh, point of note, high uh, below has no specific value. However, I'm sure there's a sensible range of acceptable ideas uh, for the scenario below. He said, in the discussion on TTL of zero, it was highlighted that some recursive providers don't always honor a TTL, or at least tweak it to a, some minimum TTL before expiring. Uh, in the further discussion about the recent registry compromise and the man in the middle attack, it was also highlighted that ideally an attacker would set high TTLs to thwart remediation efforts. Right? So to lodge bogus data in the caches of recursive DNS servers for a while. Uh, in light of this risk and the potential impact uh, this can pose, should recursive providers or DNS implementations consider not honoring high TTLs or override them? Um, so he says, should there be recommended levels or settings for high TTLs and honoring of these? Do recursive providers or vendors do this already? Um, and are there or should there now be recommended levels for setting max TTLs? In fact, this, this did come up earlier. Today right? in the discussion. Yeah. 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 And we have some implementers here. Or, uh, does anybody... I don't remember off the top of my head if uh, if Bind... Didn't we just talk... We did talk about Bind. Somebody somebody thought that There's Bind a, had a week. Yeah, max cache TTL, I think, is, is a week. By default. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. For Bind. Yeah. We have one that's much shorter than that. It's less than a day. It's less than a day. Can you yeah. see it? So if we... Send a query to if we set up our own zone with uh, right. A, uh, a, I think a very that, long TTL. Yeah, I think the TTLs that you will get from us will always be less than this value. That's very cagey. <laughs> it makes me want to. It's go also easy to test. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. I, 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 I'm saying right it that now. way because I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, right? but. But interestingly, exposing the TTL directly from the cache, one can make an argument not to do that because if you're trying to cache poison, that lets you know when the window is going to open when you'd be ready to plot your attack. Yeah. And then you got to have... I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. You, you, could also, you could also have a downstream recursive DNS server that's also caching, for example, something that's forwarding the Google public DNS. And you don't want it to get the, the ostensible long TTL right. they're presenting to you. You want it to get this trick. But you could have it be a fraction of it. You could, yeah. Well, so uh, just to answer that, this is John Tuggle again. We, I believe we, right now, a day as our limit. Um, and that really is not to prevent anybody who's trying to have a long cache time. It's really to prevent people who are making mistakes. Mm -hmm. yes, if they screw something up, then you know they, they hurt themselves with a very long TTL. And by doing a re-request, is typically much lower damage 
Um, that also to your comment about knowing when the cache poisoning can happen, um, we're also doing pre-requests, basically on the very popular items that are being requested. Right. We don't actually request it at zero. We actually requested a at some random time above zero TTL on your request, so we don't have to wait to refresh the object. Right. So you, yes, you do have an idea of when the request is going to happen within some period of time, but it's not it's not at zero. Mm -hmm. so. But that window is effectively closed because if you're if it's a popular cache item, then there should be no point at which it's not in your cache. Right. Right. Because you'll go out and get it and just replace right. the cache value. Well, um, one other quick aside is I'll question the assertion that Pat Gulli and attacker once have a super long TTL. Depends on the nature of your attack. Yeah. One of the um, both wonderful and terrible things about the DNS is it's ephemeral. And if I wanted to hide my tracks on an attack, sure. I would spearfish the heck out of somebody and have that expire from caches, and they might not even ever notice that they were sent to a long address. Yeah. 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 How many cache poisoning attacks have, have just never been detected by anybody? Was there any part of that that we didn't already didn't already address? So recommended levels, sure, there should be, shouldn't be too long. Um, do recursive providers or vendors do this already? Yes, they do, obviously. And uh, are there should there now be recommended levels or settings for max TTLs? And I know Bind has that has a max cache TTL setting as well as a max end cache TTL setting, which is there, if I recall, because they really changed the semantics of the last R data field of the SOA record. It used to be a default TTL, and now it's negative caching TTL. And folks were worried that you know, somebody would upgrade to a new version of their DNS server. The semantics would change out from under them, and all of a sudden they'd have a negative caching TTL that was much longer than they intended. In the grid sound, it's, it's okay. I was just, I was just, that's literally what I'm checking right the now. Negative caching TTL on the grid zone is, is a day? Wow. Yes, it's never yeah. because it's never been changed. It was eighty six four hundred forever chiseled on stone tablets, and changing yeah. anything in the root zone is hard. What organization could do something about that, Matt? Mm. <laughs> I don't. I don't think anything needs to be. You done. have to choose your battles. I mean, how often? How often do new TLDs come into existence? Not every day. Oh no, I think it's one of those things where it was this way, and nobody has ever cared enough about it to change it. I, it, I don't it, think it. I think it's a perfectly valid. I, yeah, I, I think that's still reasonable for for negative caching in the root zone. Um, for you know, for a new TLD to come online and expect to be fully operational within 24 hours of being added to the root zone seems somewhat optimistic to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, uh, it is one last because the other side of that is also uh, there's a patch that I don't think is officially part of Bind, but is still commonly available for it for a min cache DTL too, and I know other implementations have their own variation on that. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. So, so that they'll won't buy they're fetching names more frequently than every five seconds or twenty seconds. Or so we have we have two more questions actually. They, oh, we I have the one from Chris that I answered in email, which is about um, the. Recent man in the middle attacks we talked about DNS espionage, and then there's Jesus talking well, about the flip side of this, which is TTL of zero. Should we take one or the other or both? Uh, well, the thing about the DNS espionage uh, attacks are they're so complicated, and I, I'm not convinced anybody has the complete view of, of what's going on. And yeah. so it's I, I I will say that I don't think I could could do justice explaining even having heard people involved with them. Describing, I had to write an article about it. Oh, all right. So maybe well, you want to talk about it? I, we we can. We can. Okay. 
can, at least briefly. So um, the the attacks that they refer to when they're talking about DNS uh, DN espionage, I have a harder time actually saying that than explaining it, um, were a series of attacks uh, carried out by some organization that was initially, initially attributed to Iran. Um, and in these attacks, the bad guys managed to get credentials for registrar accounts, DNS hosting accounts, from a number of different organizations uh, around the Middle East, and in fact, uh, outside of the Middle East, some six US federal government agencies were, were affected by it. Um, in fact, Packet Clearinghouse, uh, your partner uh, in, in the Quad9 enterprise, they were, they were affected. And what the folks did with these was a little more clever than usual. Um, they, of course, redirected people who were trying to access the mail and web servers of these various organizations to mail and web servers that uh, that were impersonating those, but on they were effectively just reverse proxies. Um, these mail servers and web servers would actually go to the legitimate sources of data on the back end because they have the real data. Um, and in order to, to give users the sort of complete picture that nothing was wrong, uh, these folks used the let's, the let's Encrypt service to go get legitimate TL, uh, legitimate service. They didn't actually. Let's Encrypt did not, I'm going from memory here, Let's Encrypt actually did the right thing and looked at DNS, they went to another cert vendor. Oh, they went to a different cert vendor. Oh, I'm sorry, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry no, 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 that, no, that's perfectly okay. I certainly don't mean to impugn Let's Encrypt if it wasn't their fault. But, but basically, if you think about the way that um, most CAs determine whether or not they can give out a cert, uh, if, if you've ever done this, for example, you go through their web interface and they'll, they'll give you a challenge. Like they'll say, hey, go put this text record at this domain name in your zone and that'll prove to me that you really do run that zone. Well, obviously, if you've stolen their DNS hosting credentials or if you've stolen uh, the registrar credentials, you can change that data to where, whatever you want to. So they were, they were able to get legitimate certs, plug them in uh, on those, those middle boxes, those reverse proxies, and then just sit there and look at all the incoming email, looking, look at all the incoming web traffic, record that. And they did that in some cases for, for weeks or even months before anybody noticed. And uh, Cisco's Talos Intelligence Group and uh, FireEye were the two organizations that reported that. So that's, that's sort of what uh, the background is. But in this, uh, in this case, Chris, uh, Christopher Parente, asked us, um, said, been out of the internet infrastructure game for a while, hope you can confirm something for me. DNSSEC fully implemented would have prevented the US government hijacks, yes or no. So I believe he's referring to these hijacks. And unfortunately, I think the short answer is no. <laughs> I, so uh, Matt Pound said again, I, I, I disagree with that uh -huh. because of caching. That it, it, oh. if, if, one of, the, one of the features of why this worked so easily is the fact that they turned on the attack and then turned off the attack in, in very short periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, continued to run it over, over a long period of time, but the, the individual periods of attack were quite short. Um, even if they had changed DS records in that time, um, any validating infrastructure would have still found the responses bogus because of cached DS records and, and cached DNS keys. So, um, because you they you can't go through a full key roll in an hour for through most infrastructures. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, any, any validating infrastructure that had cached records from these zones that were under attack would would have marked them as bogus. And, and in 
PCH's particular case, um, pretty much everyone at PCH uses Quad9, which is a validating cursor. The problem is that the people who got popped were on hotel networks right. that were right. not allowing any DNS through, so therefore you have to turn off your devalidating resolver, right. use the hotel resolver. Couldn't use one. And in that, you know, that three transactions, your their email clients were very, very aggressive in trying to reconnect to the mail server, so they got a few requests out that went to the un, unvalidated uh, servers, and therefore that's that's those are the holes that occur. Right. So, yeah. so what, you're, what you're saying, just to be clear, it is is um, initially they were going through some hotel captive portal. Yep. That captive portal insisted that they use a particular DNS server. Um, it's not it take, right. After, of course, you you authenticate to the captive portal, then you've got hopefully free run of the internet, and then you can use Quad Nine. Yep. But in that brief window, where you're forced to use that DNS server, and before you can switch over to Quad Nine, they sent queries that were answered by the other DNS server for the mail servers that they were accessing. Right. Right. And right. so to refer back to the question, I think it hinges on that very important phrase, fully implemented DNS. In that yeah. case, DNSSEC was not fully implemented. Yeah. yeah. But I think in this case, so Matt, your comment about uh, caching is, is, I think, important. Because even in this case, as I understand it, or you know, to, the, to the extent there is one case, right? I think this is a bunch of uh, different things going on. But my understanding, as I heard Bill Woodcock talk about it, was that there was a particular zone that the attackers did not bother changing the DS record. Yeah, they, um, they did not. Yeah. Right. So had, but even, even had they been smart and said, all right, we are going to try to make a, a chain of trust in DNSSEC so that things validate. Matt, your point about caching, you, know, you can only move stuff so fast. So that still would be would be protection. Although they were they were, I believe, in control of these these zones over an extended period of time, long enough so that if they had started at the very beginning and not say say they had not changed any other zone data, but they could have actually done the key rollover at the beginning. This this okay. might this might be a flaw in my understanding of the attack. Um, but what what I understood the attack to be is that they changed the delegation information at at the parent, at the TLD. Mm -hmm ran their attack for an hour, and then put it back. That's mm -hmm. correct. Mm -hmm. um, and so if they were doing that, um, they, they would, they, they, again, yeah, they, they, they could not have attacked uh, a DNSSEC sign zone mm -hmm. in, that in, where they couldn't have attacked somebody using a validating resolver. Right. That uh, had previously yeah. cached the DS. Right. Yes. It relies yes. on it actually being cached. Yes, yes but then true. they would also, in order to not be caught, they, they changed things back. So yeah. that they did this, you know, they knew that if they left these name servers in place, the, the bogus name servers in place for any period of time, it would be noticed. Yeah. So their 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 plan hinged on on quick pop-ups and then disappearing and changing everything back to the way it was. Now, if they wanted to do the DS record shift as well, they would have to leave their name servers in place. Otherwise, they'd have to go through another key roll, and all that becomes very obvious when you're looking at any kind of monitoring system or you know records start to fail due to other problems. So, the answer is still, I think, yes, DNSSEC would be a. a was and is a significant defense against these kind of attacks. It makes it much, much, much harder to cross the threshold of success. Um, but obviously, it's not it, not 100% because there are these very small edge cases where you can get through. Well, if only, I, you may as well implement DNSSEC, if only because so few people really understand it. You know, this is like this is like when you when you leave your hotel room and you tape a little hair across the across the door so that when you come back, you can tell that the thugs have broken in and are waiting to beat you. Right. Only right. Cricket says right. Like this is something we all do. <laughs> you all do that. <laughs> right, well, should we should we do the one last question, which I think is this can, the seven partner? 
I, no, but sure. <laughs> a question, I don't know if, if John would be interested in talking a little bit about, but I, I find fascinating the fact that your resolver infrastructure is heterogeneous and that you have at least two, maybe more. Three now. Three now, okay, <laughs> I, I thought that you might have mentioned a third yeah. one. Um, I, I know probably some organizations do that, but, but as a large public resolver, it's, it certainly must be a little bit challenging sometimes to deal with that, and I think I even remember seeing some conversation on DNS off about maybe a draft about standardizing, what was it, something about the, it was a computation of, of Oh, it, uh, it was the, um, DNS the digest, DNS cookies. Yeah. The cookies, right. right, yes, the cookies, standardizing the cookies. Maybe that wasn't you, but maybe that would be something you'd be very interested in. So, so to give a little bit of background, Quad9 um, runs right now three different open source recursive resolvers as part of our infrastructure. Wow. Um, we started out with two and it ran for two two for quite some time. The third, which is Bind, ISC's Bind, was only added within the last three months or so. But we're running with ParaDNS Recursor and Unbound. And the reason for that was really to, to save our bacon. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we, we decided that relying on just a single recursive resolver was a bad idea because that would give us no uh, uh, redundancy in the case of any kind of code issue. It's hybrid vigor, really. Right. And, and that actually, in fact, has uh, saved us on a number of occasions where both Unbound and Power DNS had issues which caused either slowdowns or, in some cases, uh, outright stalls. Mm -hmm. And the other ones just took over uh, without any issue. Mm. Uh, we're, we're running DNS dist in front of those, so there is still a single point of failure. But uh, we have, you know, I'm knocking on the, the, the vinyl here. Uh, uh, DNS dist thus far has actually never had any kind of significant problem that has caused an outage. So even in that case, however, we can fail out so that we're not using DNS dist, so we can actually go direct to the recursors if we need to. But you're you're correct; it is challenging. Um, unbound. And RDNS have significantly different ways that they handle things um, uh, with how quickly they fail on, on lookups and how aggressive they are in finding things. How they handle DNSSEC in some certain edge cases uh, is different. So yeah, we do, we do constantly find differences between the two and we report them back to both uh, um, author sets and, and some changes have been made to both packages based on our experiences. So we don't have any, we don't, you know, we haven't lost any fingers yet. There's certainly a lot of, there's certainly a lot of little cuts and paper cuts and, and minor scars, but there have been no fingers lost. Um, adding um, bind was, we recently did that just as a, a third and as, more, as a test more than anything, but it's actually performing really well. That's actually what we're rolling out our ECS infrastructure on. Um, so, but that's a, we haven't announced that publicly, although I've got more just did. To the extent that our dozens of listeners. Yeah, exactly. are, you know, millions, <laughs> millions. Uh, but it's, but, but, so 99911 is running with ECS using bind, um, and that may expand to, to being uh, in, in our primary uh, service addresses as well. But, okay. So again, it's hybrid vigor. Yeah, it is, it is difficult. You know, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of writing I could do on talking about all the differences between them, but um, so far, no fingers crossed. I remember when you guys launched uh, looking at the Root Canary, or maybe when Root Canary launched, and, and the, the little picture that Root Canary shows, which uh, for us recently was also kind of mixed up. But for you, I think because of the differences between bind and unbound and the algorithms they support it, a little bit of patchworky yes. kind of thing. Uh, in many cases, one wheel resolves something and the other can't, and that gets put into the packet cache on DNS dist. So that actually works in our favor even in places where it's invisible. Sometimes we'll notice that you know, Unbound can resolve something that 
pirating this camp, or vice versa. And because we have DNS dist in front of things acting as a packet cache, you know, the first query might fail, but we have more or less a random distribution of where, you know, which backend you pick. And then the next query works, it gets put in the packet cache, and there it sits. And that, that solves some, some problems that might be more visible to people who only have one of those. Plus, so you have a shared cache. Well, among, among DN the... DNS dist acts as a packet cache. So oh, I see. It, it, yeah, it sits yeah. in the front end cache. It's a front end cache, and, and that, it actually handles the majority of our queries. Huh. Um, uh, and it's, it, we're, we're very pleased with it, it's, it's very fast, um, but it, it's not very smart, so it, it has to hand everything off to the back end person. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've used it before. That's also part of the reason so. why it has never failed for you. Right. Stupid programs yeah. don't make mistakes. <laughs> uh, we're actually, we actually ask it to do quite a bit more than, than it normally does for most people, and that gets very, very unhappy with us when we ask for features. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, it's a simple program, stop asking for things. I think it's interesting also to mention, uh, since Alex brought up the whole DNS cookie issue and what had happened there was um, because it shows some sometimes how it's easy to miss something in the standards process. DNS cookie was intended as an eDNS uh, anti-spoofing mechanism by which a client and a server could you know kind of identify that they were the proper endpoints to be talking to each other. But if the client request went up and then got farmed out to a different implementation server behind the same address, well, the cookie that was associated with the name that was associated with that address all of a sudden, because right. it was calculated by a different algorithm since the original RFC didn't find it necessary to specify an algorithm, would generate an incompatible cookie and it would come back and it would be then be determined as spoofed. And so you had wasted a lot of round trip times trying to establish a legitimate sync up on the cookies. And so um, based on the feedback from uh, Quad9 doing that, the implementers went out and actually came up with a shared algorithm for how they could all make cookies and make it interoperate. Yeah, the, uh, the the trouble with running heterogeneous environments like that is, it's interesting. I I worked for Affilius uh, many years ago, and and they uh, have as part of their marketing material the fact that they run a, a highly heterogeneous environment, um, all the way to, all the way down the stack. Um, so two different network and switch vendors, um, two different server vendors, each running different uh, uh, processor architectures. Um, and and then two different uh, name server software vendors, uh, and uh, and a lot of work went into actually um, multiply combining all of those in different ways too. So you know each each software vendor on each um, infra uh, processor architecture, you know, and all and, of the combinations. Yeah, and and uh, and automating um, the the operations there became. Incredibly complicated um, for yeah oh yeah oh yes and also also two different operating systems in, involved in there as well so yeah it's uh, there's there's a lot of a surprising number of gotchas in managing that um, and we and we got a lot of questions from downstream recursive operators as well because we were running different name server implementations on the authoritative the um, precise responses to certain questions would would uh, uh, be different occasionally. Uh, one implementation puts certain things in the additional section that another implementation doesn't. Orders things differently. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it it caused quite a few um, support questions over the years. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I think that's an honest uh, number of questions. So <laughs> now we get to the witty banter. The witty section. banter section. Yes. Do we have any witty banter? We have well, the. If you had only started the Neil Stevenson book, we could 
talk about that. Oh, but apparently new, you're saving, right? I'm saving it for the beach this yes. summer, yeah. So we can't talk about the new Neil Stevenson book other than to say that there is a new Neil Stevenson <laughs> book. And the title? Uh, it's called Dodge... No, uh, Fall. Fall. Is it called Fall? Comma or Dodge semicolon Dodge in Hell. And this is the like book that. that you're actively reading yeah. right now. <laughs> I'm not reading the cover <laughs> over and over again, Tail. I'm reading the text of the book. But you asked me uh, before we started if I uh, we were going to compare uh, shows we've been watching recently, and, and I recently binged uh, Chernobyl on HBO. Has anybody else seen that? The miniseries about. I, I think it's worth. I think it's worth watching. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. People who know about the former Soviet Union have said it's fantastically accurate in terms of its depiction, you know, like clothing, objects and scenes, yeah. uh, everything like that. Well, but, if only because the Russians have taken such exception to it, I'm going to watch it now. Yeah. But it's just, uh, I, I sort of really got into it and I read the Wikipedia article, which is, of course must be true. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I've actually done a little reading about the accident and it's yeah. just sort of astounding how, how bad it went and how much they messed it up. I mean, well, obviously it exploded, right? So it went very bad. But, you know, a series of bad decisions like any accident and and they, they blew it up and just, oh, it's so horrible. You know, it's, I, I don't think I really appreciated the magnitude of the disaster until you're forced to watch hours and hours of, of the impact dramatized. Well, that'd be like you and Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else watched anything good they want to talk about? It's an old series now, but I loved Halt and Catch Fire. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, really, sure. Really, really good. Lee Pace and yeah. um, and uh, what's her name? Uh, I only remember the character. The yeah, yeah. yeah she's, but she's she's great too. It's four seasons, and it uh, was on. I guess you can see it on Netflix now. I think. And yeah. It was on, uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll add it to the queue. I have to enjoy it. Like the, so, I've been taking advantage of uh, Netflix's download feature in order to like binge watch old things that I never got a chance to watch. Especially, I have young kids at home, so don't ever get to watch them at home. And so, on airplanes, I've done like the whole House of Cards. I'm just finishing off a uh, Better Call Saul now. You know, mm-hmm. and keep working through all these other good series that people said were so awesome like five years ago, and I'll finally get to see. Them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I treat every airplane flight as like a mission to Mars. Yeah. Like, I, like I have every way more content queued, reading, video, audio, so that you know I can handle a two hundred day flight if necessary. Exactly. Indefinite delays. Yeah. I think I have uh, I have the last four seasons of Catastrophe on the iPad. I don't know if any yeah. of you guys have. Oh yeah. Have you not watched it at all? Oh, or? I watched the, per- the entire first season. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think, did you recommend it to me? I might have. Either you or my friend Tom did, and so I watched, good. I watched that. Really fun. Yeah. Yeah, really fun. It's a, it's a, a cute series with um, starring a couple of, of very funny actors uh, about a, a, an American businessman who goes to London on, on a, a trip, has a seven-night stand with a, an Irish gal living in London. She gets pregnant, so he decides to move back to London and make a go of it. But they barely know each other. So I think the one question, though, that is of topic this year is how did you feel about the Game of Thrones ending? Were you? I'm blissfully ignorant of anything to do with Game of Thrones. <laughs> I, I, I found it disappointing and out of character. You know, a lot of a lot of the characters really sort of backslid. Went back to the device, but that's that's not a new that's not a new theory. <laughs> I think every everybody who watched the the show thought that. 
I gotta watch the hot zone. Have you the, watched the hot, the hot zone? zone? The hot no. zone, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. That that so the the book, my ex Paige read the book and it freaked her out so much she wouldn't go to Washington DC for I don't know how long. It's about it's about monkeys, a, a right? of breakout at the rest monkey house. Yeah. Which is right near. Which is <laughs> yeah, I have to drive by it on my way to the airport tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you think we should call well, this a... I'd like, I'd like to make one, just one thing before you close it. Just out of national pride, I think I need to uh, object to some witty banter from a previous episode. Oh, oh, no. oh I usually oh, don't have oh, real-time... How long have you been harboring this? Real-time <laughs> real real listener feedback. Yes. All right. Go ahead. And in, in which uh, Matt referred to um, the uh, um, uh, Tatiana Maslany uh, show... Um, oh, Orphan Black. Orphan Black. Oh, fantastic yes, show. As a British television show uh, um, although although the BBC is involved in some of the funding that show is filmed and almost entirely cast in Toronto yeah yeah, yeah. I, knew, I knew you were Canadian. yeah yeah she's like she is excellent she is fantastic she yes is excellent and that um, it's worth it's worth watching uh, the full first season just to watch Tatiana Maslany yeah. play all of those characters and then she'll be hooked and you watch all the rest of them Seriously, yeah. it's called Orphan Black. Orphan Black. Yes, it's yes. A, it is, and it's it is over now. But it was a fantastic show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's terrific. All right, shall I take us out? Sure. Thank you, guys. All dozen of you. Uh, I guess actually, probably half of our audience <laughs> is probably sitting here in the room. <laughs> Um, thank you all for tuning in again, and uh, we're abjectly apologetic for the long hiatus that we went on. But there are only so many of these events to uh, to record at. Um, and we hope to be with you again before too long. As always, please send us questions. Uh, our email address is MrDNS, MRDNS, at ask-MrDNS.com. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.